Hello, and welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose, and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on, and then we teleport back to today to talk to real experts about how that world we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we're starting in the year 2022. This is Marion on channel 16. Over. Marion, this is the Ethel. Over. Ethel, switch over to channel 71. Switching to 71. Ethel, have you been to Henry Bay today? Yeah, passed through a few hours ago. You see anything weird? No. Why? I got a lot of dead fish floating around in the water. Dead fish? Yeah, just floating around. Thousands of them. And the water's weird. It's like soda bubbling or something. You been drinking too much? No more than usual. Marion, this is Ethel on channel 16. Are you okay? Over. Ethel, this is Marion. I'm okay. What the hell happened? Must be a volcano. I'm watching it now. Tons of smoke and ash erupting up out of the ocean. Must have killed the fish before it reached the surface. Probably want to get out of there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm moving. Over and out. Marion, Marion, this is the Ethel. Ethel, this is Marion, over. You go by Henry Bay today? No, I had my excitement for the week. There's an island here now. An island? Yeah, I guess the volcano made an island, man. We should have a party out there. All that ash is going to clog up your intake, you know. I'm not sticking around that long. How close are you? Fifty meters, I'd say. Looks pretty solid. Wanna check it out tomorrow? Why not? Eleven hundred? See you then.
So this episode is about a future in which a huge underwater volcano erupts, breaking the surface of the ocean, forming a new island, and generally wreaking havoc. This episode was suggested by listener and longtime friend of the show, Charlie Lloyd. And in fact, while this might seem far-fetched, it's actually not at all. There are tons of volcanoes underwater. So on Earth, there are over 60,000 kilometers of mid-ocean ridges, and they're really just a long line of volcanoes. So it's the largest volcanic chain of mountains on the planet, but we don't see it because it's underwater. My name is Tracy Gregg, and I am an associate professor of geology at the University at Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. And my area of expertise are volcanic eruptions, and I have studied them everywhere from the moons of Jupiter to the bottom of the ocean. So there are 60,000 kilometers of mid-ocean ridges, which is the equivalent of over 37,000 miles for those of us still imprisoned by the imperial system. To put that into context, the circumference of the Earth is just under 25,000 miles. So there is enough mid-ocean ridge to circle the Earth one and a half times, approximately. And along all of those thousands and thousands of miles of mid-ocean ridge, there are volcanoes. And those volcanoes are actually erupting all the time. We just never know about it. On land, scientists use high-tech monitoring systems to detect volcanic eruptions before they even happen. We listen for earthquakes that are, I say listen, they're subsonic. We can't actually hear them, but we have instruments that can feel the vibrations caused by magma, molten rock moving underground. And that's a much better signal that something's happening than, than our eyes. So on dry land, there are lots and lots of these seismometers in the ground all over the world. But underwater, not so much. It's just a lot more expensive and a lot harder to put those seismometers in place under two and a half kilometers of seawater. In fact, there are only two regions of the entire mid-ocean ridge that have these monitoring devices in place. One is off the coast of Oregon along what's called the Juan de Fuca Ridge. If you read that New Yorker piece about the really big earthquake that could destroy all of Seattle, this is the ridge it was talking about. And another off the coast of Mexico, uh, west coast of Mexico, it's called the East Pacific Rise. Those are places that we know are active and they are monitored and we can listen for those earthquakes. But that's two spots along 60,000 kilometers of mid-ocean ridge. So it's happening all the time and we don't see it. Most of the time, these eruptions happen without breaking the surface of the water. And here's why. On Earth, when a volcano erupts really violently, what we're generally seeing is a ton of dissolved gases hitting the air and exploding. I think most people's everyday experience with this would be a, a soda pop or a, a beer bottle, where you grab that bottle and you look at it and you don't see any gas in there, but you shake it up and that foam rises to the top and you know there's gas in there. Now you can see it. And you know what happens when you open a soda pop bottle that you've shaken, right? It, it blows up. So on land, the explosion would be like opening the bottle, which is pretty easy to do. But underwater, there are thousands and thousands of pounds of pressure on top of that bottle cap. If the gas is kept under pressure with your soda pop that's keeping the lid on, then it's not gonna explode. Well, water, weighs a lot. 
And so volcanoes on the bottom of the ocean under two and a half kilometers of water, they're also under a lot of pressure. And so that gas that's inside the magma doesn't want to come out. It doesn't want to make bubbles. It wants to just stay dissolved in the magma. So if you take the same magma with the same amount of gas and you erupt it on land and you erupt it underwater on the deep seafloor, on land it will explode, underwater it won't. It will just create a lava flow. What that means is that some of the most powerful eruptions underwater never actually break the surface at all. In fact, in 2012, the largest deep ocean volcanic eruption of the last century was only discovered by accident, thanks to a woman who happened to notice something while she was looking out of the window of an airplane. A passenger on a commercial airline jet was flying from Tonga to Auckland and she looked out of her window and she could see these gigantic tan-like accumulations on the sea surface. This is Rebecca Carey. From the University of Tasmania and I am a volcanologist. So this woman's plane landed in New Zealand, and she called up a group of scientists there to ask them what the heck this thing that she saw was. And that really triggered a process within Geological Nuclear Sciences New Zealand to try and discover exactly what these features were. So the scientists went out to look, and what they discovered was that this weird thing in the ocean that this woman had seen was not an oil slick or anything like that. It was a pumice raft. A pumice raft is essentially an accumulation of volcanic pumice clasts that are buoyant. They're full of holes. And this particular pumice raft had come from a volcano known as Hav. Hav Volcano is a submarine volcano that's located on a submarine volcanic chain that extends north of New Zealand towards Tonga. It's approximately a thousand kilometres north, northeast from Auckland. Now, scientists knew about this volcano before the 2012 pumice raft. They had actually first discovered and mapped it in 2002. So when they saw the pumice, they suspected that it might have come from Havre, but they had seen no other signs of an eruption. Even once they were able to determine that this pumice had come from Havre, they had no idea how strong that eruption had been. The size of the pumice raft told them something. The pumice raft itself had a volume of about one cubic kilometre. So that's equivalent approximately to the 1980 large uh, Mount St. Helens event. But a pumice raft alone can't tell you everything. We had no idea of what had happened on the seafloor, whether it was a single vent, multiple vents, and where those vents were, we we didn't know. We virtually knew, knew nothing. So researchers decided to go back to Hav and revisit the volcano. They had a map from their 2002 studies, and with this new data, they could compare how the topography had changed. And they could assume that most of that change was probably from the eruption. So Rebecca and her team set out to examine the volcano using a couple different high-tech tools, including a remotely operated vehicle called Jason. I think we spent 240 hours on the seafloor with the remotely operated vehicle. And secondly, an autonomous vehicle called Sentry. So when they looked at the data from 2012 and compared it to 2002, 
What Rebecca and the other researchers found was that this explosion had been really, really big. The largest deep ocean silicic eruption of the past century. The word silicic in there just refers to the type of magma that came out of the volcano. It's the same type of magma that came out of Mount St. Helens when it exploded in 1980. And in fact, the researchers think that this eruption was as big and as powerful as that 1980 eruption at Mount St. Helens, which killed 57 people, decimated hundreds of square miles, and caused billions of dollars worth of damage. This 2012 Havre eruption was basically like taking Mount St. Helens and putting it underwater. And we might never have even found out about it if it hadn't been for someone noticing this pumice raft out the window of her plane. But if the largest eruption of this kind in the past century didn't manage to break the surface of the water, what does it take? A really good example of a volcano breaking the surface is Surtsey. This erupted off the coast of Iceland in 1963. That's Tracy Gregg again. It started on the bottom of the ocean, And the first things to come out of the volcanic vent on the bottom of the ocean was just lava. Um, There were no explosions because the water was deep enough and there wasn't enough gas in the magma. So it was just lava. But the eruption kept going. So the lava started piling up and piling up and piling up. And the weight of the water, keeping it down, started getting less and less and less. So as the lava pile grows and gets closer to the surface... Um, The gas that's in there is more likely to be able to explode. And when water comes in contact with this really hot lava, the water wants to turn into steam. And water turning into steam can also create an explosion. Remember, all of this is totally invisible to humans at this point. It's happening underwater. And there are no sensors down there to tell anybody that anything unusual is going on. But if you were there in a submarine, you could see underwater explosions with steam and flashes of lava and heat, and it'd look really cool. So this volcanic eruption is just slowly building its way towards the surface. And in fact, the first people to notice that anything weird was happening were fishermen. It's not far from an island that's famous for its fishing. And so the fishermen noticed bubbling in the water and they noticed dead fish in the water and they noticed nasty smells of sulfur in the water. And that sulfur is volcanic gas that's coming out of the lava. And then on the 14th of November in 1963, a cook on a fishing boat radioed in to report smoke rising from the ocean. And then big explosions big explosions um, shooting out steam and ash as the lava was blasted into pieces by the water turning into steam and creating these explosions. Thankfully, nobody was injured during this eruption. Fortunately, in this particular case, Surtsey was off the coast of Iceland, and so the fishermen were all from Iceland, and they were quite familiar with volcanic eruptions, so they weren't too... (laughs) They weren't too upset. They were uh, annoyed at their inability to go fishing. The eruption lasted from November of 1963 and didn't officially end until June of 1967. And by the end, there was a whole new island there, formed by this volcanic eruption. The island was named Surtsey, after a legendary figure in Icelandic mythology named Surtur. I think that's how it's pronounced, but I probably got it wrong. He's not a god exactly, he's more like a giant, and he's often depicted with a fiery sword. A giant of fire like a volcano, if you will. And the island that bears his name is still there today, 
It's about a half a square mile, all told. Nobody lives there, but scientists are studying both the geology and ecology of this new island. The first plant life was observed on the island in 1965. In 1983, a group of 70 seals made Circe their new breeding spot. In 1984, a gull colony moved in. And the volcano probably didn't just change the ecology and geology above ground, either. There are lots of super fascinating studies that show that underwater volcanoes, even ones that don't break the surface, impact the chemistry and biology of the surrounding areas. So the Surtsey eruption broke the surface because it was able to build up enough lava to wind up close enough to the surface of the ocean that the pressure could no longer contain the eruption. But there's another way for an eruption to break the surface too, which is to simply be in shallow water to begin with. And that's what happened in 1650 off the coast of Greece. So Colombo volcano is quite close to Santorini volcano. It actually was quite a shallow eruption, around 250 metres depth. But it was very powerful and it was a significant volume, probably twice the volume of what was erupted at Havre. Colombo is the most active submarine volcano in the Mediterranean Sea. This is Paraskevi Nomiko. Uh, most of the friends call me as Evi Nomiko, and I'm an assistant professor of geological oceanography at the University of Athens in the Department of Geology and Geoenvironment. Evi has spent the last 10 years studying the Colombo volcano, which sits in the water just five miles off the coast of the island of Santorini in Greece. And in 1650, Colombo erupted. The first sign was a few earthquakes, but since earthquakes aren't particularly uncommon in that area, most people just ignored them. As they got stronger, everyone assumed that the eruption might come from nearby volcanoes on land. But they didn't seem to be smoking or showing any signs of eruption. Then the ocean turned a weird color for a couple of days, a sign that the eruption was happening beneath the surface. And then on September 27th, Dense clouds of smoke and ash started to rise from the ocean, bringing with them these horrible, noxious fumes. There were more than 70 people that they were died due to the poisonous gases that they were releasing during the eruption in Sadorini. Eventually, people started to see a peak coming up out of the water. Then there was building a huge cone, and the, the people understood that, uh, okay, an eruption is going on because they saw the peak of the cone. A few days later, the volcano really blew, and one account from the time called that day, September 29th, 1650, quote, the most terrible day. The earth quivered and the air was afire. Thick sulfurous steam billowed out of the depths. Then suddenly the clouds caught fire, lightning rent the sky, thunder burst forth, and strange forms moved before one's eyes, flying snakes, shining spears and lances, and whirling blazed torches. The eruption was so powerful that some sources say it was heard as far as 250 miles away. But it wasn't just the gases that caused problems. The eruption also caused a tsunami that swept over the island. And of course there was created a huge tsunami that in in a height of more than 20 meters that was all the eastern part of Sadorini was destroyed completely. The tsunami carried away livestock, destroyed buildings, and ruined fishing vessels and other fleets. But that was 1650. Way more people live on and travel to Santorini today. Two million people visit every year. 
In fact, there are so many tourists trying to go to Santorini that a few years ago, the local government voted to limit the number of people that were allowed to get off cruise ships every day to 8,000. And Evie's work has shown that Colombo is still a threat. We know that this volcano is very active because we found in 2006 a very active hydrothermal vent field at the depth of 500 meters. Evie and her team found over 100 active hydrothermal vents around Colombo, and they were all letting off super hot gases, which suggests to them that the volcano is still active. But there are no sensors in the ground near Colombo. No, unfortunately, there there are no uh, any kind of equipment uh, on the seafloor, only chimneys and bacteria. Strangely enough, nobody in Santorini seems all that worried that there's a volcano right offshore that could decimate the island. I am from Santorini. I was born in Santorini. Okay, my family is still there. I think that they do believe that nothing will happen in the future. And because they can't see the volcano, it's easy to forget about it. I think this is, happens to all the submarine volcanoes, okay, all around uh, the world, because they believe that it's far away from, from land. They say to themselves that, okay, it's on the seafloor, so we don't need to worry about this volcano. But all of Evie's work shows that it's possible Colombo could erupt again. In fact, it's easy to imagine another big volcanic eruption in all sorts of parts of the world. One big enough that it causes a tsunami and creates a new island. But what happens next? And would we be able to predict or react quickly enough? We'll get to that after this quick break. So at this point, we've established that this kind of eruption can happen. So what happens next depends largely on where the volcano actually is. If it's off the coast of Iceland, chances are it won't kill anybody. If it's off the coast of Santorini, it would be far more dangerous. If Colombo erupted, Evie says that there would be some warning signs, like earthquakes. Using sensors, scientists can deduce whether an earthquake was caused just by regular tectonic activity or caused specifically by the volcano. You can study the signals of the earthquakes, then the scientists can understand that these earthquakes are volcanic, So if they see regular earthquakes that behave like earthquakes caused by magma, they can guess that the volcano might erupt. If you see that we have, for example, for six months or for three or four months, earthquakes in the specific region, in the Colombo area, something is going on with the volcano. But there's no knowing for sure exactly if or when it might happen, which is why Evie wants money to put detectors down in the ocean near Colombo. Now, any eruption that breaks the surface near a population center would certainly disrupt flights and cause general travel chaos. And after all of that, you might have a brand new island, like Surtsey, or the island that was formed recently off the coast of Tonga. Thrill-seeking boaties has given us the chance to get a close-up view of an exploding volcano. The eruption is underwater just off the coast of Tonga's main island. In 2009, a submarine volcano 28 miles off the coast of Tonga began spewing ash and pumice out of the ocean. Nature's power on full display as an underwater volcano burst to the surface, spewing columns of hot ash, smoke and steam thousands of metres into the air. Oh, well, look, yeah, look at that. 
Recreational fisherman Lothar Slobin, originally from Germany, journeyed out with friends to witness the dramatic explosions at what used to be his favourite fishing spot. He says he could see burning seabirds falling from the sky. Eventually, the volcano calmed down. But then, in December of 2014, another eruption broke the surface. And the landmass that began in 2009 got bigger and more stable. It was actually starting to look like a proper new island. Experts warned people not to go to the island. It was too dangerous and too unstable, they said. But that did not stop this guy. My name is too long. Everybody call me GP or Bassano is my family name. GP is short for Gian Piero, and GP used to be a photojournalist. So the prospect of getting the first photographs of a brand new island was just too exciting to pass up. In fact, he had arranged a special flight in 2009 to see the volcanic eruption when it was first happening. So in 2014, he set out again on a boat with a few friends for this new landmass. And it was not so easy to land, but uh, finally we land uh, and uh, we were the first people going and put the feet on top of the island. But despite being the first humans to set foot on this new island, GP didn't claim it for himself. I put just the flag of my soccer team in Italy. (laughs) (laughs) Who's your team? Torino. Torino. (laughs) And in fact, GP doesn't have a ton of interest in going back. The land is unforgiving. There's no water, no shade, and it's incredibly hot. No, it was a very, I can say, very, very hot. Very hot. It was a sunny day and uh, all black. You You can imagine it was really, really hot. And the island isn't solid. The ground is still really soft. So it was uh, not so easy to go up and especially to came down. It was uh, all really, really fragile, than the ground. But when they reached the top, he said it was all worth it. Volcano created a lake because uh, the seawater and rain came into the hole of the volcano. And it was a green lake, big and was absolutely fantastic. The view was beautiful. There was plenty of birds flying all around, all around, all around. As soon as you move, you got thousands of uh, seabirds uh, surrounding you. And it was really something. <laughs> For now, GP will wait until the volcano erupts again. If it does, he'll be out there with his camera. But until then, he'll just look at the new island from afar. But at some point, if the conditions and location are just right, someone will try to claim one of these volcanically formed islands, right? They may not have a lot of resources, but they do offer the allure of having your very own land, your very own island. And if you play your cards right, you could even try to turn that island into its own nation. That's what Roy Bates did back on September 2nd, 1967, when he officially declared independence for the nation of Sealand. Now, Sealand isn't a volcanic island, but it does provide an interesting window into what it's like to try and create your own island nation in the modern era. It wasn't a volcano that built the physical land of Sealand, but instead the British Navy. So Sealand used to be called Ruff's Tower. It was a coastal defense platform built by the British in the Thames Estuary during World War II. This is James Grimmelman. Uh, I'm a professor at Cornell Tech. I work on internet law. James wrote a paper on a certain thing that happened on Sealand, and we're going to get to it in a little bit. But 
He wanted to begin that paper with a quick history of Sealand. So people had written a little bit about the history before, and I just meant to write a short paper about the big lessons for what it means for law, and I just got sucked down the rabbit hole researching the history. And we are going to fall down that rabbit hole a little bit here, too. So back to Ruff's Tower. It's the end of World War II. It was actually one of a handful of towers built out in the Thames estuary, and the British Navy abandons them. Then, in the 1960s... Pirate radio broadcasters set up there uh, in the hopes of evading the British rules on putting rock and roll on the air. The United Kingdom only had the BBC, and there was no, no pop music for the kids. It was just classical music and, and in-house BBC orchestras. And then Britain effectively extended its power far enough to put the pirates out of business. But one of them, a guy named Roy Bates, just stayed anyway. And he moved his family onto this place and then decided to make his own country called the Principality of Sealand. And he and his family have been there ever since. Yeah, my, my name is Michael Bates, or Prince Michael of Sealand, depending uh, on the occasion. Uh, and I am the reigning monarch of the Principality of Sealand. When we first went there, I was, let me think, I was 14, 14. And I was with my dad Christmas Eve 1966 when we took it over, and I went and stayed out there. I left school early at 14 years old in the Easter holidays, I suppose. From I was at boarding school in Wales. Michael's first impressions of Sealand honestly sound kind of terrifying. It was unreal. You know, there was like down the bottom of the towers, because there were rooms all the way down each tower, the seven floors, and down the bottom of the towers were cormorant bones from, you know, those big seabirds, cormorants, where they managed to find their way down there but couldn't get the angle of attack to fly out. And it was just like it had been left in the war. Roy Bates, Michael's dad and the founder of Sealand, passed away in 2012. So now Michael runs the place. And when he dies, he'll pass Sealand on to his kids. Well, my, my oldest son, James, he's, um, what is he now, 31. Um, he's next in line. And then behind him is Liam, who's nearly 30, he's 29 now. And then, uh, and then the next one after that will be well, I suppose we have to, uh, do, do we jump girls these days? I'm not quite sure. My daughter's 26. Well, if you're a nation, you get to decide who gets you, if there's women in charge or not, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that one when we get to that one. <laughs> now, according to Sealand, they are a sovereign nation. According to the UK, they are not. Well, according to the Montevideo Convention, to create your own country, you need population, you need territory, you need government. And you need the capacity to enter into relations with other states. Well, of course, we have all of that. So the Montevideo Convention on the Rights and Duties of States is a treaty that was signed in 1933. And that treaty says that for a state to be legitimate, it has to have four things. First, population. Check. Someone lives on sea land all year round. Second, territory. The Bates claim that by abandoning the towers, the UK gave up their rights to them. There was dereliction of sovereignty. Um, the British government walked away and left it back in the back in the fifties. Third, a government. Sure, Sealand has a government. It has a king, a queen, a prince. And fourth, the capacity to enter into relations with other states. This is where it gets a little tricky. Sealand claims that they had the German ambassador out to the tower once to discuss something, which we'll get back to in a second. And Michael says that they were once in communication with the French president, and that's quite enough recognition for them. 
So according to the Bateses, Sealand checks off all the boxes. The UK, on the other hand, does not see Sealand as independent at all. And technically, today, Sealand sits in UK water. In 1987, the United Kingdom expanded its territory from three miles off the coast to 12, which enveloped Sealand. Plus, they don't recognize the German and French chats as legitimate recognition by foreign governments. But the UK doesn't really want to force the question either. So far, there's been no real harm in letting the Bateses claim that they operate this nation of Sealand in the Thames estuary. And removing them would certainly be a media spectacle and probably make the UK look bad and the Bateses look like martyrs. So they just kind of let them be. So Sealand carries on, continually coming up with new ways to fund their nation and stay in the news. We have our own football team and it's a bit small for that. We keep losing the ball. They even sell Lord and Lady titles online. If I became a Lady of Zealand, what does that mean? Like, how, what do I get? Well, you, you get a, a, a magnificent-looking document, frame document you can hang on the wall, and you can you can put it on your you know your identity, uh, on your passport or whatever you want, you know, and you're and you're a supporter. Over the years, Sealand has been at the center of a handful of let's call them odd events. That German ambassador's visit that I mentioned, the one that they count as entering into agreements with foreign nations, well, the German ambassador was there to discuss a hostage situation. Roy Bates got connected with some Germans who had, they said, grand plans to invest a lot of money in the island, uh, turn it into a seaport, an offshore casino, basically develop this thing into uh, a huge new offshore project. And the whole thing mostly appears to have been a scam on their part. So they lured Roy and his wife off the tower to a meeting, and while the rulers of Sealand were gone, these guys sent some Germans to land and take the tower over. They landed under false pretenses, tossed his son Michael, uh, basically (laughs) in one of the legs of the tower for a while to imprison him, then eventually stuck him on a boat for shore. So when Roy and his wife realize what's happened, they rush back to Sealand. And with the aid of a friend who was a helicopter pirate, pilot, they actually successfully reinvaded Sealand and held the one German and two Dutchmen under arrest for a while. And since there was a German national being held on the tower, the German ambassador had to get involved. It's hard to know how seriously to take the whole thing, but if you take the Sealand side of the story seriously... The Germans send somebody out to take a look, and this amounts to diplomatic recognition of Sealand as an independent nation. That's probably not right, but a few guys on a platform in the middle of the ocean are capable of creating a major diplomatic embarrassment. Then there was the fire that nearly destroyed the tower and that the British Coast Guard helped put out. And then there was Havenco. So in the height of the dot-com boom, Last time, people were worried about excessive government control of the internet. Some entrepreneurs with a libertarian bent thought, hey, if we put some servers on Sealand, then we'll be outside the reach of every government in the world. We won't need to worry about Chinese censorship or Saudi attitudes towards pornography or American copyright law. We're going to be in an independent jurisdiction, and it will be almost anything goes. You know, no child pornography, but... You want to have a gambling site? Go on, we'll put it on Sealand. And we'll use Sealand's sovereignty as a way of guaranteeing internet freedom. 
So they got some investors, they struck a deal with uh, the Bateses, and they moved out there and stuck servers in the legs of this platform. This brings us to the reason that James wrote his paper on Zealand in the first place. Because Havenco, this offshore set of servers, is a classic case study in internet law. It's one of these examples that everybody talks about in their class because it's so colorful. And the question at hand is this. What type of law governs those servers? Is it international law, British law, Sealand law, none of the above? It turns out that the answer is complicated. And James's paper is largely about the three kinds of things that we could be talking about when we talk about law and Havenco. First, national law. These are all of the laws that Havenco existed to help its clients get around. So I mentioned, you know, Saudi pornography laws and American copyright law. Havenco existed so that its clients didn't have to comply with those laws if they didn't want to. Second, international law which is the law we're talking about when he says it's the law that Sealand is an independent state. It's international law that supposedly gives Sealand a right to ignore what every other nation on Earth wants. And the third kind of law here is Sealand law. The laws of Sealand itself. And those are the laws that say, actually, you can't put child pornography on anything you host here. And that also, you know, create a justice system. Sealand law is what was being invoked when they put the the German on trial after the Civil War. So when legal scholars think about Sealand and Havenco, they have to balance these three kinds of laws and figure out which ones apply in which situations. Of course, this is complicated further by the fact that most countries don't recognize Sealand law at all because they don't recognize Sealand as an independent nation. Now, we don't have time to get much deeper into the specific legal ins and outs on this episode. You can read James's whole article on the legal arguments surrounding Havenco and Sealand online. I will post a link in the show notes. It's totally worth it, even if just for the extra Sealand historical bits that I didn't even include here, including a Red Bull skateboarding special and some perpetual motion machines. Anyway, ultimately, Havenco failed for a number of reasons, not the least of which was cost. It turns out that criminals had other options. It turned out that putting your servers on a platform off the coast is pretty expensive compared to other options. But the whole point of this detour into Sealand and Havenco is because I wanted to know, what if there was an island formed by a volcano? See, here we are back on track. Could those who settle on it build something like Havenco? Could they create an offshore nation free from the laws of the rest of the world and use it to create a truly open and lawless internet? James says, possibly? Uh, it's an interesting question. I think you're going to you see similar questions around what will space colonies look like. Uh, and you know, the seasteading obviously raises similar ideas. But remember, any volcanically formed island is going to be really hostile to live on for a long time. There will be no plant life, no trees, no shade, no power. In that way, it's actually a lot like Sealand. It's a fascinating place. Great adventure. Really bad for building a life uh, across generations. It takes you know, some pretty extraordinary efforts on behalf of the Bates family to make even as much a go of it as they have. But no one else wants to live there. Uh, it's not a great environment for long-term anything you build a complex commercial industrial, you know, post-industrial society on. But let's be clear. 
Just because something would be incredibly expensive, ill-advised, and generally overly complicated does not mean that someone won't try it. In fact, James thinks that Sealand and our hypothetical data center on a newly formed volcanic island are both good metaphors in general for the ways that technologists can sometimes try to build an entire culture and world around a single invention or innovation. And I think the same thing is true of a lot of other uh, utopian fantasies about technology. Like Bitcoin, smart contracts, really interesting. They may have some great applications. I cannot imagine that you want to build your entire society on a basis of pure smart contract enforcement with no human discretion built into it. So if you are waiting with bated breath, hoping for a submarine volcano with just the right power at just the right depth in just the right location so you can go stake your claim and create your nation, that's what you need to know. And I will leave you with a word of advice from Michael, the Prince of Sealand. So let's say that there was um, an island created by a volcano. So there's an island now that suddenly has popped up. Let's say somebody was to go there and claim it. Do you have any advice to them as like somebody who has now maintained a sovereign nation for over 50 years? What would you say, you know, do's and don'ts? Don't do it. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't mean that at all. I don't mean that at all. But it's, uh, you know, uh, you, you don't get a lot of help with it, you know? So there you have it. Maybe just don't. That's all for this episode. To find links to more information about anything we talked about this episode, check out the show notes or go to flashforwardpod.com. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Eveleth. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hussalonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways that you can do that too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. This month on Patreon, $10 and up donors get a little goodie bag full of cool stuff like pins and patches and stickers. But if financial donations are not in the cards for you, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review. Or just tell your friends about the show. That actually really helps. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one.